Good morning, everybody. If you're, if you're visiting today, I want you to know my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be hanging out afterwards. If, I, if you want to come up and say hi, I'd love to meet you. It is good to be here with you. Merry Christmas. And I'm glad you made it. It's starting to get sleety and icy out there, so we have an adventure waiting for us in another hour here when we go home. It'll be perfect. Oh, it's beautiful. And I want to say to um, kids, you guys are up here visiting and hanging out with us today. We love that. It's fantastic to have you here, and we're stoked about it. And you guys get to be kids. Uh, if there are, is, do we have the coloring pages? Thing? All right. Uh, if anybody wants some coloring pages right now, because I'm going to tell some stories, but give a sermon, which might get boring for just the children, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> if you want a coloring page and some crayons, just pop your hand up, and there'll be a couple people coming around to bring it to you. All right. We've been in a series for three weeks. This will cap the end of our Advent series. And the big theme through each of these four sermons has been overturning. Christmas comes and something radical changes. Things that we had thought were normal and true, uh, the advent of the Son of God changes the world. And so we've been looking at different specific things that are overturned. Today we look at the concept of autonomy being alone, and the way that God's love changes that. So I want to start with the question, and here it is. Who would you say, and kids, you think about this too, who would you say are the most important people in the world right now? Who's the most important person in the world, or who are the most important people? And what criteria do you use to make that call? So is it, is it the people, have you chosen in your mind, okay, here's the most important people. The most important people are the ones with power and influence. Those are the ones who have the most power and influence to change, to create change. They must be the most important. So the mayor of Portland, to most of us, is just, it's more important than the guy that collects the shopping carts in Walmart's parking lot. We say, this one is really important, this one is not as important to us. That might be one of the ways that we frame it up. Um, and we don't necessarily need to just be specific like that, but what groups of people? CEOs are more important than salaried managers, which are more important than part-time hourly employees. It's just how it works in our world, that's normal. Somebody's more important than the other. Even broader, we might say high school graduates versus high school dropouts. Who's more important? Which one do you want to be? What about you kids in here? Who's the most important in your school? Is it the, is it the ones who have cell phones versus the ones who don't? Maybe it's the one who has the Xbox 3 or the PlayStation 17, whichever one it is. They're the most important. They have the best stuff, or maybe the skinniest, the ones with the best clothes, best families. Who's more valuable to us than others? Who matters most? Old folks, young folks, married folks, divorced folks? Are Americans more important than Syrians or Norwegians? This all kind of begs the question, what people 
would God put on his MVP list? If God is sitting up, looking down upon all of us, who makes his most valuable people list? The ones he cares about and loves the most. And then which ones go into the category of he doesn't care quite as much about those types of people? Which ones fit there to God? I think we could go on and on on this sort of thinking. You can just start to think, huh, what are the human systems of worth that we've all been taught to understand and just operate by? We don't even think about it. It's just how it is. Who would you rather have at your dinner table? The mayor or the guy who collects shopping carts? Who's the one you want input from? Who do you seek advice from? It's just normal to separate and divide and then assign value to different people and groups of people. But as we've been doing in this Advent series, we're looking at how what seems to be normal life to us oftentimes is actually brutal death. And as Jesus comes in, we don't know that because we live in a sort of a darkened mindset. And so we use language like Jesus is the light of the world. He comes in and he sheds light on some of these realities and we say, whoa, I have not thought about this that way. And that is true, truer than what I've known. We have a lot to learn on this particular issue. I've talked about this in the past few weeks as well. I don't know that anybody here would say, yeah, we live in a society right now that's really, really respectful toward one another, and we're really gelled, and we're tight, and we're close together. I think we would probably say, no, we're actually fractured and fragmented and divided and fighting. And we do that because we think it's normal. But Jesus is abnormal. In so many ways, he comes in and he's the light of the world. He teaches us that what we think is normal is actually a dark path toward brutal death. There's a a very wise, we're going to talk about the wise men today from the Bible, but there was a wise little green man with pointed ears. He said once, once you start down the dark path, forever it will dominate your destiny. Consume you it will. I think that's actually true. Here's what I mean by the dark path. We start first by thinking that there are some people who are worth more and worth less. That's the first step. The second step is to find out where you fit in there. And to find out where you fit, you have to look up and say, I'm not as good as that person, and then look down and say, at least I'm better than those. What have you just done? You've isolated I'm not like other people, and I'm not with other people. I'm in my category of people. I am my own. I am a self-made person. Don't tread on me, one of our state's mottos. Live free or die, New Hampshire's state motto, which honestly, if you think about it, that means it would be better to die than it would be to let go of my rights. It would be better to die than it would be to submit myself to another. I would rather die than have to do something I don't want to do. It's an amazing mindset. It's better to die alone than to take the form of a servant 
and obey an unjust ruler, especially if it costs you your freedom. Fight for your right to be alone, on your own, independent, autonomous. This is just normal to us. You and I have a long history. We're part of a long history of declaring our independence to the world and to one another. Isn't that what we did all the way back in the Garden of Eden? We declared our independence from God. We said, I hear you, God. I love you totally, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I don't need to be with you, and I don't need to love you that way. I'm going to love myself. This is a dark way of life, and it has not done well for us. But then comes the bright light of Jesus at Christmas time. And with the greatest love that our world has ever seen or experienced, those autonomous barriers start to dissolve. When you think about how the story, this Christmas story, is told in the Bible, you see how God's love is a love that ends autonomy. It's a love that destroys all of the systems of human worth. It is a love so amazing, so divine, that it demands our soul, our life, our all. God willingly gives himself to all children and to all women and to all men as a grace, as a true gift. He himself is the Christmas present to all of us. He's not just a joy to the valuable ones in the world. He's a joy to the world, the whole world. I want to be with you, he says, not to the people that you call better or more important, smarter or holier. I want to be with all of the people of the world. I just want you to stop and let that sink in for a second. And we'll go to the wise men's story. The true God of all of this entire universe wants to be with you. The God of all the cosmos wants to be with you. He chooses that. He desires that. That says something about who you are. He loves you. He's also a great storyteller. So I would like to turn to Matthew chapter 2. It's the story of three wise men who have traveled so far, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star, okay? So here's the story of the three wise men. Matthew 2, I'll start right in verse 1. Here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Magi. Who are these magi? What are these guys? like? We don't know a whole lot about the magi. But we know that they were very important people. They were, they were in some traditions, even called kings. We three kings have traveled so far. I think they were all straight-A students in school. That would be my guess. I think they loved to study philosophy and astronomy. They were very, very intelligent, some of the smartest, most important people in their world, and that often comes with lots of money. They're very wealthy men. Now, being experts in the stars, 
and you don't necessarily have to be an expert. You, you kids, when, when you look up at the stars, are they wiggling around a lot, or do they stay pretty still? They stay pretty still. The Big Dipper doesn't pour anything out ever. It just stays there, you know. It doesn't move. The stars, they knew, don't move, and because they didn't move, they revered them. They saw this as the celestial realm. Something up there is different because down here it's wild and chaotic and ever-changing. But up there the stars stay in the same spot, so much so that I can determine my future based on which stars I'm born under. I can navigate over land and sea based on the stars. So these astronomers looked at the stars. None of them are ever moving. They revere them greatly, and then a star starts moving. What did they see? They saw the movement of a star as a profound phenomenon and revered that as a sign from God, an announcement being made. In their day... There's lots of evidence for this. There was lots of writing in the Roman culture, in the Far East. There was an expectation well outside of Israel that a king was coming out of Judea. Tacitus, uh, Suetonius, there's a whole bunch of different quotes you can pull from this era, right before, right after, that suggests that people in their day were expecting a great ruler to come out of the land of the Judeans. So when they saw the star moving... They saw it as an announcement from God that this is happening now, and then they acted. They see the star moving, and they say, huh, let's get our camels and go on a great adventure. Now, I think it's almost possible to believe that one of the wise men might have been named Bob. I know a very wise man named Bob, so let's just pretend there was. And when the other magi, they see a moving star, they say, hey, wise man, Bob, We need to travel across the deserts, so go get the camels and fill up their humps with water. You need to have that if you're going to travel across the desert. So they get the camels' humps all filled with water. And then wise man Bob comes to them, and he says, let's go on the way to Judea to see this one who has been born the king of the Jews. Now they get to the land of the Jews. It's a long trip. The camel humps are probably just about out of water at this point. Long trip. They get there, and then they say, let's go see the king. Now, the king, his name was Herod at the time. So they come up to Herod. They say, hey, Herod the Great, we came to worship this king that has been born. Do you know where he's at? You know, and then they said, our Google Maps aren't working right now, and we've totally given up on Apple Maps, just whatever. Okay, so they, they, they're in the right spot. They go to the King Herod, and then he says, or they say this, all right? Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, that they came to see another king, it says he was disturbed, really disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, the smartest and best people in the land, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Verse 5, they said this, in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. I think they're quoting the great prophet Micah here. Verse 6, this is a prophetic text from the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem, the house of bread, you in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, 
For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. You know, Bethlehem was the place where Jacob buried his wife, Rachel. Bethlehem is the place where Ruth lived when there was a great famine in Moab. She was not going to survive. Came over to Bethlehem. It was, actually, that's not right. I just mixed that up. There was a famine in Bethlehem and she moved to Moab. And then she came back to Bethlehem. And there, I think, is where she found a great salvation in her relationship with Naomi at the place where God provides. More importantly, perhaps, it was the place where David lived, the great King David. And so this was a cool town. It was a famous town, but it's still a small town, about six miles south of Jerusalem. Now, here they are. They're with Herod, King Herod, and Herod's a pretty important guy. I question this. I'd ask you guys, do you think Herod was somebody that people liked or not? Was he a good guy to the people or was he not a good guy to the people? I'd tell you that that question is often, uh, we're a complex kind of being, aren't we, we humans? Herod was actually a pretty great guy in some ways. The land had been very chaotic and wild and through a whole bunch of timeouts, he brought it into submission and control, okay? Herod was a great ruler who brought peace to the land, and so the Romans called him king, and they loved him. But Herod was half Jew and half Edomite, or Idumean, and so Jewish folks saw that kind of person with mixed blood as not as important, and so they didn't really like Herod. Herod was also a really benevolent and good king in 25 B.C. He got established as king in like 47 B.C. In 25, there was a great famine. He sold his own gold to be melted down so that he could feed the people who were starving. He cared about them. But he also had his wife, daughter, and three sons killed because he thought that they were, uh, he was very suspicious and he became more and more crazy toward the end of his life. Like crazy, crazy town. He was, he was really strange. And he really, really freaked out whenever anybody seemed to be coming after his power. That's why he had his own family members ousted. The great uh, Roman emperor at the time, Augustus, says it is safer, safer, safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be his son. So Herod was, was a, a mixed bag. Some good, some bad. But we see him toward the end of his life in this story, and we know that he's pretty, pretty intense, and he's a threat to baby Jesus. Okay, so imagine how these, these oriental kings felt when they come rolling in on their camels. First, I'm sure, they ask if there's anywhere that they can refill the camel's humps with water. Then... They ask the worst question of all for a king like I've just described. Where is this new king of the Jews? He says, what? Inside, I'm sure, I think Herod probably had a mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. I thought I was the king of the Jews. I thought I was the fairest of them all. What is this about a new king coming up? That can't be right. Even worse than that, and you saw in verse 2 where they said, we don't just want to find him, we want to worship this king. Well, that's not what Herod wants to hear. 
This is the worst possible news, so he's disturbed. Don't think mildly disturbed. Think all torn up inside and freaking out. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi, the wise men, secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go, search carefully for the child. And then when you find him, boy, I sure would like to meet him too. Come back and tell me where he's at so I too can go and worship him. Herod is lying, isn't he? In the next part of the story, which you and your family can read this evening as you sit around and and prepare for Christmas time, you guys can read the rest of the story where you see that Herod doesn't want to worship baby Jesus. He wants to kill him. He wants him destroyed. He wants him gone. When we think that we are very important, we don't like it when somebody says that we're not. And he did not like the idea that somebody else would become the king. Well, off to three wise men go. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, this is Herod, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. That's an interesting scene, isn't it? These super important guys, these philosophers and astronomers with great wealth and influence and power, here they are on bended knee, sitting in the same dirt that the lowly shepherds had also sat in, sitting in the same dirt mixed with animal filth. They're on their knees, fallen prostrate before the king. This is the beginning of a new and very, very different kingdom, a kingdom unlike any other kingdom of the world, a kingdom where all human systems of worth are dissolved under the power of God's love. Verse 11, then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, probably because Herod was very cruel, they returned to their country by another route. I think that God helped them out here. Herod would have gone crazy on them too, and so they were able to bypass him and get back home. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some say that gold is the gift that you give to a king. That's very Very common in their day. Seneca, the Roman philosopher from then, he tells us that it was a custom that nobody could approach a king without bringing a gift. And when you bring the king a gift, if you can, you bring gold. That's what you bring for a king. Frankincense was a gift for a priest. In the temple, the priests used this incense to burn. So they bring a gift for a king. They bring a gift for a priest. And then myrrh is a gift for somebody who would be embalmed, somebody who would die. There's a foreshadowing in the gift of myrrh for what Jesus will do in this world. Just by looking at these gifts, we see a picture of what Jesus will become, a great king, a high priest, and one who dies as a sacrifice. 
a man who chooses on purpose, Jesus will become a man who chooses on purpose to let another person hurt him. He will let go of his right to be free. And instead, he will take the form of a servant or a slave. And he will obey an unjust ruler even to the point of dying. That's what the myrrh is foreshadowing. Jesus is obeying God who says, don't fight with the people who are going to kill you. They're going to kill you. And I will be with you and I'll raise him back up. It's an amazing thing that Jesus does. He comes in and he doesn't hold on to his right for total freedom, but instead he lets go of it for our sake. These are beautiful treasures. What gifts they give these wise men. They're meaningful acts of grace that they show to Jesus because they love him. They have hope in him. Hope in his power to rule the world. These guys would not have filled their camel's humps up with water and traveled across the dangerous wilderness to come and bow down before Jesus if they did not believe that he was a great reason to have hope, that he was going to truly be a great and ultimate king. There's no way they do that if they don't believe it. They're here because they see the world, they know how it's been going, and they know that it's going to take something very different than what the world's been trying for a long time. So there they are. They're far out there, these wise men, far away in a different land, worshiping other gods. We don't have an indication that these men were Jewish. They're from a different spot. But they hear about this great thing that's happening, and now they come. There's something that's drawing people into Jesus already just when he's a little tiny infant who hasn't done anything yet other than being born. The shepherds were drawn. The wise men were drawn. I wonder if you and I ever feel drawn to Jesus. Do you feel yourself drawn to the love of God, pulled in by his strong desire to be with you? Or have you isolated and set yourself into a framework of human worth in which you say, I don't think that he would want to be with somebody like me. I've felt that way throughout most of my life. A strong pull toward Jesus, but a clear understanding that I was not the kind of person that his kind liked to be with. I saw myself as deeply broken, lost, and I, saw, and I saw the ship as having sailed. I had my chance, but I made some choices in life that put me into a spot that would be well outside of the love of somebody like God. So I just resolved to, to live there. I thought, well, that's the best I can do. Do you feel yourself being pulled toward God's love? My encouragement to you is to let go of your resistance toward God and direct that resistance toward the way that our world is ordered. Resisting the way of the world and actually accepting or receiving the love of God. Every Christmas tree, every ornament, every present, 
All of this celebration, this time of year, begins with the truth that God gives himself to you because he loves you. Will you resist or will you receive? Let's wind this down with a recap of what has happened in these last four stories. God has started out with insanely important news to tell the world, the most important news that he's had to tell yet. And who are his news reporters if not the low-grade low shepherds? He should have gone to the powerful priests, the noteworthy scholars, the people who had influence and clout. That's where a divine being who's holy and beautiful and amazing goes. He wants to be with those kinds of people. But this God doesn't do that. He goes to the social rejects. Why? Because I don't think God understands social rejects. It's not something that computes in his mind. There's literally no such thing. His intent is to create a social bond with every single one of us. He doesn't see the shepherds the way that the world values them. He doesn't see you the way that you probably think of yourself. Because he calls you his son or his daughter, his beloved He goes to the shepherds and he picks them and he says, my shepherds, I chose to reveal this news to you because you are just as important and valuable as all other people. Before that, God chooses a poor, unmarried woman to be the Theotokos, the mother of God. His own human mother. Why an unimportant nobody like me, says Mary, I don't matter that much. I certainly don't deserve this eternal honor. And God says, my Mary, I chose you because I love you. Not because you're sinless. Not because you're better than all the rest. I chose you because I want to show the world how it thinks and how I think. Those are very different things. Your world says that as a young unmarried woman, you have no value. You can't own anything. You have no vote. You're unimportant to the culture around you. But I will show you and all the world that that's not how I think. You're just as important as I am. Whoa, that sounds heretical. How could Mary be just as important? And yet, how could Jesus be born without Mary? How could Jesus take on true fallen human flesh if not being born through Mary? God participates with her life to bring salvation. He values her. He treasures her. He participates with my life to bring salvation into the world. He participates with your life to bring his saving gift to all of this world. God sees us as infinitely valuable. Only when your life is joined to God's can a great salvation occur in your life and in the lives of those around you. Nativity sets are great because you always have to set them up on a shelf or a bookcase, which is, at least if it's crafted with some basic skill, is, is level. Everybody sits on the same playing field. It's level. There isn't hierarchy on our, on our bookshelves and, and cases. 
When you see in each of these Christmas stories, we see the shepherds, we see Mary and Joseph, we see Simeon and Anna, very, very old, very, very outside of the fray of their society, just devoted to God. And they're all the major players in the most important story in the Bible. (laughs) It's amazing. God is saying something to us. You look at each of these stories, you see a picture of God's love that is putting an end to autonomy and hierarchy. He's totally leveling the ground. Nobody coming to King Jesus comes on higher ground than anybody else. And the same is true at the foot of the cross. Nobody comes to the cross on higher ground. We all step to Jesus' sacrifice in the same place, receiving the same gift. Whether you're the mayor or a shopping cart collector, whether you see yourself as super important or not, God says, you are beloved to me. All the various isolated communities of his day, we see the very beginning of them coalescing around Jesus. Wise men coming in from afar, religious folks, shepherds, all of them coming around to Jesus. It's a picture that we see continued on through the rest of the New Testament. Everybody coming, all learning that they're beloved, treasured human beings. This Christmas story reveals something that's often lost in the piles of crumpled paper. It shows us how the love of God ends autonomy. It pulls you out of isolation and teaches you to understand you are infinitely valuable. Men and women who want to follow Jesus, I say turn your face today. Turn your face to him. Step off of the dark path and into his great light. Begin the process of losing yourself in his love. Accepting it. That's not easy. It's so easy to say, God loves me, I believe that, that's great. To truly, truly see yourself as infinitely valuable and beloved is a difficult task. But I pray that through God's spirit, he will bless you with that understanding this day and this season. Men and women and children who want to follow Jesus, who want to become one with him, turn your face toward your fellow neighbors today and see them through the eyes of God, a God who becomes a broken and suffering human being because of his great love for us. When you see people the way God does, hatred is over, prejudice ends. Hierarchies of human worth are done. You no longer say the teacher is the best person and the student is the lowly one. You say, I've got something to learn from both. A pastor says, I'm not just interested in other pastors critiquing my sermons. I care about what my seven-year-old thought. Is it connecting? Each person is just as valuable. But we're different. We come to this place. My prayer is that we would see one another through God's eyes. Infinitely valuable. The great apostle Paul teaches us to never merely try to improve ourselves, to never believe in ourselves, or to think that we're more important than others. As beautiful Lily read to us earlier in Philippians 2, 
In humility, Paul says, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And as you relate to each other, take on the mindset of Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, this Jesus who comes to us as a gift. And what is Jesus like in his nature? What is his mindset? Well, this is the Jesus who is fully God, yet he did not use his power to his own advantage. He did not think his own rights and freedoms were more important than the lives of other people, and so he made himself nothing. By taking on the form of a doulos, a servant, a slave, being made in Mary's womb and born into human likeness, This infinitely powerful God humbles himself and submits himself to our broken world. And he follows his father's lead until it costs him literally everything. This is love that Christ Jesus died for you. This is also love that Christ Jesus was born for you. And this is the overturning power of our advent this season each year in the life of Jesus' church. Each year we come to this and need to be renewed. We need to remember that his own love rescues us from the death of independence and autonomy. He teaches us not only that he loves us, but that we depend on him. He sustains our life. Your heart is beating right now because God loves you. It's blinking right now. Your ears, your, your ears are blinking. It, that doesn't make sense. Your eyes are blinking because God loves you. He's sustaining the molecules in your body. He's holding you together in his great love. We will perish, but when you're bound tightly to God, that will only be momentary. And then you live with him for all of eternity. He pulls us out of the isolation that we do find temporary comfort in. And he pulls us into a life of love that we find to be eternal. Pray with me. Father, I pray that this Christmas you would silence the voices in our minds that say we are unworthy. That every Christmas tree star would remind us that you are the light of the world. That every gift we tear open tomorrow would remind us of your great gift. And that every nativity scene we see would remind us that we are all on the same level. There's no human being more important than another. And God, once that truth settles into our hearts and into our minds, I ask that you would show us through your Holy Spirit how your love changes our perspective on all people. Let us become a community who values our time with any neighbor, who says every human being is worth my time, regardless of wealth or religion or gender or culture. Let us become a people who value one another equally, who love to hear what our children think just as much as what our pastors think who love to serve our next-door neighbors just as much as we love to serve other nations, who extend your love to every one of our classmates in school, our teachers, and everyone else in our lives the way that you clearly do. 
And I pray that as we depart from here today, knowing that we are all suffering from fear and anxiety and deep sadness and feelings of isolation, I pray that you would break into our hearts and minds just as powerfully as you did with Mary and Joseph, with Simeon and Anna, the shepherds and the wise men, just as you showed them, would you also appear boldly in our lives and help our souls to feel their worth. Help us to know how worth it our lives are, how much you love us. We love you, our great God, and we trust you with everything. Amen.